following audio is from a sermon series entitled Practicing the Way of Jesus, a study on the Sermon on the Mount. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Is it worth it? Is it, is it worth it? You've probably thought that question. You've probably asked that question. It seems to be the, the most dominant question when the screws start to get tightened. We're faced with the daunting load of schoolwork. Oh, is it worth it? Can I make it through? I don't know. Or, or the load that we have to take at work. Can I do it? Or it's when you roll out of the bed early in the morning to roll out to the gym, right? You rub the sleepy out of your eyes. Is it worth it? Is it really worth it? What about when you are facing messy relationships, right? You know what I'm talking about. When the screws really get tightened and and the messiness, the brokenness of of our humanity gets surfaced in the context of relationships, whether that's with people at work, in our own homes, in our missional communities, right? That's when the question comes up, is it worth it? Or when you're faced with with doing some of the emotional legwork of working through childhood wounds or or growing from, from, from the shell of what you are to what God is calling you to be, is it worth it or would it be easier just to throw our hands up in the air and walk away? To to pull the ripcord and bail. See, when things get hard, this is the question that we tend to ask ourselves. And if you are asking yourself this question when it comes to living the Christian life, Right? When, you, when you set out to follow Jesus with your whole life and you're asking this question, you're not alone. 
Because practicing the way of Jesus, right, really following Jesus, not just being hearers and affirmers of the word, but to be doers of the word, following the ways of Jesus, isn't easy work. In fact, Jesus is showing us here in the Beatitudes, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, just how counterintuitive it is for us to live according to the ways, the dynamics of the kingdom of heaven. It's counterintuitive. It requires a radical reorientation, and it's downright, especially if we're trying to do it in our own flesh, in our own, by the, our own power, it's difficult, if not impossible. And some of us might start walking and following Jesus and start thinking, well, Jesus, was Jesus really honest about what it's like to follow? Yeah, I mean, he, he did say, uh, come to me, my, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Is, was he fibbing? Was, is he misleading us? What, when that, what, when that is true, his yoke is easy, his burden is light. Jesus also warns us in Luke 14 that we must count the cost of discipleship. That we must take into account what it's going to require of us to follow him, not just on Sunday mornings from 10 a.m. to 11.30 or 12 o'clock if I get long-winded, but in all of our life. He says you must count the cost to live within the dynamics of the kingdom of God is difficult, especially as we navigate this kingdom of earth that we are stuck in right now. It's not going to be easy. Now, let me ask you this. What happens when you take something that's already hard and you make it harder? Like if I were to tell you, hey, uh, I want you to go swim an 800-meter swim. Like there's some young guys in here that do this every morning and just like cake for them. But for the, the average human... That's a pretty hard task. Like, and it, you think about it, it's like, oh, it can't be that hard. It's really hard, actually. Take a hard thing, like swimming 800 meters, and then I say, oh, yeah, but now you're actually going to swim with ankle weights. Right? Hard thing, harder. Or if I say, hey, go run a mile. Hard, right? Difficult. But while you're running, I'm going to shoot you with paintball guns, you know? Taking a hard thing and making it harder. How, how can you, right then, the question is, is it really worth it? Is it really worth it when we take a hard thing and you make it harder? Now, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount here, as we get to verses 10 through 12, he's preparing us for this question because we see that practicing the way of Jesus in and of itself is hard, right? We're farting, fight, farting against, fighting against our flesh. We're fighting against our flesh. <laughs> oh, I won't live that down. It's just hard, right? It's hard. That's right. See, if you practice the way of Jesus, which is already hardened of itself, and then on top of that, you start to get persecuted simply because you are practicing the way of Jesus, is it still worth it? Now, here, as we talk about persecution this morning, I, just, I see a lot of you are out there wearing masks, and I'm grateful for you guys doing that. One of the things that's been like circulating right now, oh, the church is under, like, we got to wear masks. Listen, wearing a mask is not persecution. It's not. We're talking about real unjust treatment or unfair criticism being personally attacked based upon doing good works. 
We're talking about real persecution here. So this question, in the midst of practicing the way of Jesus, facing real persecution, the question gets louder. The more resistance you face, is it worth it? And verse 10 through 12, as we roll in through the final two Beatitudes here, it's sort of, you could say it's one Beatitude or it's two Beatitudes that have a lot of overlap. However you look at it, these two Beatitudes are preparing us for this question of is it worth it, not, not if, but when, we come across persecution, when we are afflicted because of our faith. And so we have to ask, is it worth it? And if it's worth it, what is the key to remaining steadfast? What is the key to being faithful in the midst of being under fire? Now, and then Jesus takes it one step further as we move into this beatitude where he says, not only do I want you to, to be steadfast in this, but actually, how can you celebrate this? How can you welcome persecution in a way where you don't just put your head down and start mourning and just move toward despondency, but you can actually celebrate and rejoice in it? And so that's where Jesus wants to take us this morning. Let's, let's dig in as we go through verses 10 through 12 here. Now, for the last eight or nine weeks, we've been looking at each of these blessed statements, each of the Beatitudes that Jesus says here, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? He goes down the list, and each of one of these um, statements, it says, blessed are those, or blessed are the, these are statements that Jesus lays out, the the word is makarios in the Greek, it's a statement, it's a word that means blessed, right, that's the most natural translation, but really to get more, more of a comprehensive understanding of what Jesus is talking about, he's saying flourishing are those, prospering are those who, thriving are those who, people who are living within the bounds of the Beatitudes are stepping into the good life. So what he's saying here is this is what it looks like. These are the characteristics. These are the type of people who are living into the blessed life of the kingdom of God right here and right now. And as we look at them, a lot of them honestly seem counterintuitive, right? It seems backwards, right? It says, happy are the mourning. How? Happy are the meek. Happy are the poor, And now we come to verses 10 through 12. Let me just read them for you here and and highlight and emphasize. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. How is this? How is it that those who are persecuted and reviled and slandered are now stepping into the blessed life? How could it be Especially when it seems like being persecuted is antithetical to the good life, right? And, and none of our equations of what the good life is, do we have this idea of, yeah, I'd, I'd really like to be attacked. That sounds nice. It's not. N- nobody thinks that. And if you're thinking that this seems weird, you're not alone because In the original context where Jesus is preaching this to to the original audience, this cultural perception is that if you are suffering, if you are facing persecution, if you're facing adversity, it's because, especially coming from a pagan background, it's because the gods, whoever they are, are unhappy with you. They're upset. You did something to rub them the wrong way, and now this is them getting back at you. And so what you need to do is you got to make some sort of amends. you got to make some sort of sacrifice to get them back on your team. Now, for us, it's like, culturally, that doesn't, 
uh, we don't share those same lines of thinking, but, but when you think of it in terms of karma, like th- there's a lot of similarities here between the pagan view of, of, of the gods in the first century and, and our concept of karma. Like, oh, I d- something bad happened to me, that means to, to counteract that I've got to do something good, right? So for them in the original audience, they're thinking, no, 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 that, that can't be true. Persecution does not equal the good life. It means that you're outside of the will of the gods, whatever that means. Or for the philosophizers, because not only do you have um, people who are maybe from a pagan background, you've got those who are thinkers. Philosophy was sort of on the up and up here in, in Greco-Roman time. And so what they would say, well, it's not so much that the gods are mad at you. It's just that your life is not congruent with the good life, but that you're living your life in a way that, that cuts against the grain of life. And so they would say, well, you're just you're experiencing this pushback. You're experiencing this, this adversity, this persecution, because you're just being a fool. Right? You're just doing something that's not wise, and you're getting, it's coming back at you. And so even they would say, like, this persecution, the concept of it, to be, to be persecuted is not in line with this good life. The good life, when we think of it, must be void of persecution. So it seems that this is incompatible. But Jesus here tells us otherwise. He says that blessed are those who are persecuted. He says that those who are persecuted, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, that, that they have access to the, the good life. He says this in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So here Jesus says, your eternal good is not out of reach for those who are persecuted. In fact, those who are persecuted very well might be closest to the kingdom of heaven. But here Jesus isn't saying that any and all persecution brings blessing. He's not saying, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, if you feel, you know, if you feel slighted, this means, no, no, he doesn't say that. Like, he's very specific about the cause. Like, what causes, or what's the root cause of this persecution? And he says, like, look at it. Those who suffer for righteousness' sake. He's saying those who live an upright life, those who practice the way of Jesus, who are actively pursuing this sort of uh, good life. So we could take this and look at this and say it differently. Blessed are those who suffer unjustly. Right? Because if, if you think about it in, in the economics of Karma or what makes sense even. You know, you do good, you should get good. Well, Jesus says here, there are gonna be people who suffer unjustly, people who do good, yet their good is met with evil intent. Now, I think our, our, te- our tendency is to, when we, when we feel like we're being persecuted, when we feel like we're facing adversity, whether it's relationships or, or whatever it might be, we tend to think just automatically that any suffering that we face is unjust. Like, we don't deserve that. Like, we've, we've got rude neighbors, people who try to avoid us. Oh, they must know that I'm a Christian. Like, the, you know, they got something against me. I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do that. Or my, my, my coworkers seem to be gossiping about me or treating me in a way that's just not very fair. Oh, I don't deserve that. Or you've got family dynamics. You've got an antagonizing sibling. Oh, I didn't do anything to deserve that. I've been doing the right, right? We have this sort of default to think that whatever suffering I face is unjust, but... We rarely take into consideration that I might be suffering, I might be facing adversity, I might be persecuted because I'm just a jerk. See, the reason why my neighbor might be rude toward me is because 
as we talk, or maybe we talk with our yard signs, I'm politically insulting. I'm belittling of their concepts, their ideas. Right? The reason your coworker might not be so fond of you is, is not because you're a Christian, but they've seen you cut corners. They, they've seen you do things that seem shady that a, a real Christian probably shouldn't be doing. Or your sibling, your brother, your sister, somebody is standoffish towards you because you, you've violated their trust. And so the, the cause of our suffering, the cause of this, this pushback is not necessarily our righteousness, but rather it's our unrighteousness. It's our folly. It's our sin that's just blowing back at you. And this is why, why Jesus tells us, he's like, you're going to reap what you sow. And so for some of us, we've got to ask this question, like, if, I, if I'm experiencing this pushback, is it really because of righteousness' sake or is it because of unrighteousness? Is it something that I'm doing that's negatively impacting people? See, this is the reality that people tend to respond to be uh, uh, sinned against. When, when people are sinned against, that's how they tend to respond, right? It takes a, a Christian worldview to move towards somebody who's sinned against you. And if our, our neighbors, coworkers, friends, family don't have a Christian worldview, they don't have the grace of Jesus that's actively at work in their life, then, then no, no wonder why they push back on, on us. No, no wonder. Because hurt people, listen to this, hurt people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. It's just the tendency, the, the default reaction, right? This is the reaction that people have when they sense somebody who's self-righteous, somebody who's steeped in their own arrogance, these two things, our self-righteousness, our arrogance, are strong repellents against us. Like, that, that's not an endearing thing. People don't love, oh, I love that person because they're so arrogant and self-righteous. Nobody says that. They tend to push away. Now, this is one of the reasons why staunch religious people are usually avoided or seen as pompous. This is why some Christians just have a bad rep. It's like they have the name of Jesus. They say they're a Christian, but they don't live in line with righteousness. And it's so easy for us to get blind to these habits that we can easily drift into of self-righteousness and of arrogance if we do not have a community of grace and truth speaking into our lives. See, when we have a real loving community, I mean, they're going to love us when we're that jerk, but they're actually going to love us so thoroughly that they're going to call us to repentance. It's like, hey, have you ever thought that the, way, the reason why somebody's responding to you to that way is because you kind of come off like a jerk? And I say that in love. Like, that, that's the kind of community of a loving, grace-filled, truth-filled community where we can, can see things for what they are and call one another to repentance. And in doing so, we tell each other, look, you are not the sum of your unrighteousness. In fact, Jesus has taken action. He lived the perfect life for you, died the death that unrighteous people deserve to die, and he credits you. He takes his righteousness and places it upon you. He imputes his righteousness. So therefore, you're not defined by your failures, but you're defined by the successes of Jesus. Man, that is so powerful. The imputed righteousness of Jesus is now ours. And guess what happens? When you see that, the imputed righteousness of Jesus, the Holy Spirit starts to work in such a way where it changes us, where we now become active participants in living righteously. 
It's actually a supernatural work. You cannot live the righteous life without Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And as the Spirit works this out in our life, this is what Micah 6, 8 says, do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with our God. It's like righteousness in a nutshell. And Jesus actually fleshes this out further as we go deeper into the Sermon on the Mount, which I'm really excited to do here in the coming months. But he says, listen, if you really embody righteousness, right? If, if you're the kind of person who is reconciliatory, is that a word? If you're somebody who can reconcile, right? Somebody who's not just judgmental, somebody, somebody who turns the other cheek, somebody who's a, a faithful one-woman man or a one-man woman, somebody who, who can be a person of their word, be generous and humble, this posture, this attitude, this way of living is very winsome. See, there is an allure to humility. There is an appeal and an invitation that comes from living a righteous life. This is one of the reasons why Jesus was so good at befriending sinners. He had this natural magnetic pull. So in one sense, as we become more like Jesus, Christians ought to be the easiest people to like within our city. That's how it should be. Right? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, says, we are the, the aroma of Christ. Some translations say that the sweet aroma of Christ for those who are being saved. Right? The righteousness of Jesus just sort of fills the air around us if we're living wisely, if we're practicing the way of Jesus. It's the aroma of Christ for those who are being saved. But listen, not everyone will respond positively to our righteousness. Right? Not everybody will respond positively when we actually practice the way of Jesus. Because when you think about it, Jesus is actually very polarizing. You think, oh, Jesus, he's a nice guy, right? Everybody can kind of get on board. But actually, reality, the real Jesus is very polarizing. Think of it like a magnet. Like, magnets will always respond to other magnets. Either they'll be drawn in as opposites attract, or like magnets will repel right? Jesus is like that. He's either drawing us into himself or we are being pushed further away from him. There's no neutral ground. And, and when this works itself out in eternity, you'll, you'll end up at either one pole or the other. You'll, you'll either be drawn into Jesus and his family in the new heavens, new earth, or you're going to want nothing to do with Jesus. That's, that's what we're moving to. There's no neutral ground. So we, as Christians, we either are a sweet aroma to those who are being saved, or Paul goes on to say that we're the stench of death unto death, right? There are going to be people who, who smell the righteousness of Christ on our breath and say, nah, uh I don't want that. Therefore, we will experience, we will encounter resentment. There will be people who will abhor us as we practice the way of Jesus. We'll be persecuted because of Jesus. In fact, this is what Jesus is saying, like to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then even further on, Jesus says here in, uh, I lost my spot, in verse 11, he says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, okay, there it is, the falsely, on my account. See, people are going to see Jesus in us and not like it. We're going to face 
unfair treatment. Now, there's a broad spectrum of persecution here. Now, there, we can look across the globe and we can see horrifying acts of persecution against Christians. People being killed, people being snuffed out, the governments, whatever it might be, is persecuting people who profess faith in Jesus simply because they're professing faith in Jesus. And we can see that horrifying physical treatment. We can see how they've been snuffed out. But there's also this unfair treatment that sort of goes under the radar, right? Something a little more subtle. It's not like we're straight up being prisoned or, or anything like that. It, it, maybe, maybe we're experiencing some unfair treatment in the workplace. Like we're, we're being looked over for advancement opportunities because we're a certain way. Some sort of prosperity withheld simply because we are practicing the way of Jesus. Or even more subtly, I think this is probably where most people would encounter this, is, is just being criticized and slandered and spoken evil of falsely against us. Now, the tendency is when we talk about being persecuted, we might think, okay, those people over there, those people somewhere else might be persecuted, but it's it's probably pretty unlikely that I'm going to be persecuted. But Jesus makes this language shift here from verse 10, where he goes from, blessed are those who are persecuted, to to verse 11, where he says, blessed are you when others revile you. It it gets kind of personal here. It's It's not just them. It's the people who are standing before Jesus very well might be the ones who are being under personal attack. And Jesus warns us of this in John chapter 15, verse 20. He says, a servant is not greater than a master. If they they persecuted me, they're probably going to persecute you. So it's not a matter of if, but when we face this kind of persecution. But where is this persecution coming from? I think we typically expect it to come from those who are anti or irreligious, people who who we might label as like the heathens, like people who have some sort of vested interest in disregarding uh, morality or the life of faith. Now, the early Christians, and, and like I mentioned, the people who are uh, overseas, they can experience that. Like, they might be experiencing that in this way, where the government is, is coming down, or there's some sort of societal norms which sort of snuff them out. And we can thank God that in this country, in the United States of America, we have protections for the freedom of exercising our religion, where we, we, it's unlikely that we'll face blatant persecution. But there are still threats that linger. And, and, and most likely, we will face subtle persecution that comes through relational dynamics. And, and guess what? It might not come from the places where you'd expect it. Like, there's a good chance the persecution that you experience comes from friendly fire. People who you think are on your team who may not actually be on your team. Now, one of the great examples of this is Hudson Taylor. He was a, a, a missionary in, like, 1850. He was one of the first guys to take his missionary efforts deep into um, the inland of China, started, founded the China, in, or China Inland Mission. Um, and, and, of course, like, to take a missionary effort and move it into a place where it's an unreached people group, like, you're going to face some sort of persecution. There's going to be some sort of hardship you're naturally going to face. But what's surprising about the ministry of Hudson Taylor was not the persecution that he faced from the locals, from, from the Chinese people. Actually, it was the persecution, the criticism that he faced from other Christians. Because in his missionary efforts, what Hudson Taylor did, and this is very different, um, instead of taking his ethnocentric Western missionary efforts and, and subjecting the Chinese people, like falling in sort of the cookie cutter shape uh, of the Western uh, paradigms of discipleship, he actually embodied what it looked like 
to be a Chinese man, right? He, he grew his hair out long. He had that, that pigtail sort of thing. He wore robes. He, he embodied the culture in which he stepped into. And, and there were a lot of Christians who spoke against this. Well, how dare you do this, right? And it's just it's mind-boggling that, that he, trying to reach people for Christ, would face so much persecution from other Christians. It's not that he was sinning. He wasn't doing anything wrong. Yet, he, when he was breaking these sort of uh, subcultural norms of Christian culture, he faced all kinds of criticisms and attacks for doing good. And we, too, are susceptible when we break these societal and subcultural norms, the status quo that we might find ourselves swimming in here. As we leverage innovation and creativity for the gospel, and we do so without sinning, people are going to come by and criticize the way that we do ministry. In fact, that's, that's what happened with Jesus. The Pharisees, they kept it themselves in like the holy places. Where was Jesus? He was reaching the lost. He was at the dinner table with sinners, with those who are broken, with tax collectors. Jesus was criticized for that. Or when Jesus broke the Sabbath tradition, he was criticized for that. Now, we might feel this, we might experience this as we step into this role as peacemakers that Steve talked about last week, right? When we we try to be peacemakers, when we try to be this peaceful, prophetic presence in our city, in our mission communities, in our workplaces, it might be misinterpreted us as taking sides and so we'll be criticized. Oh, you're just lining up with them. Or when we pursue true purity of heart, which Jesus tells us, blessed are those who are pure of heart, to find true joy. Well, people say, well, the, you're just being a hoity-toity religious person, right? It comes when we affirm what is good and beautiful and true, yet we're labeled as bigots when we do so. Now, the reality is that if you live righteously, long enough, you're bound to experience persecution. Some people might be sitting there like, I don't know if I've ever experienced persecution. And, and, and maybe the question is like, maybe the question needs to be asked, are you living righteously? That, that I think is the first question. And then the second question is, what are you going to do when this happens? What are you going to do when persecution surfaces itself? The first option we have, you know, is just cut ties, retreat, it's like our reflexes kick in, like you touch a hot stove and you pull away, right? That's just what we do. We feel pain and we pull away. And we tend to think that, you know, the source of our pain is actually God. God brought this upon us when the reality is that we're just facing the pinch of living in a fallen world. And so we, we sort of bail on this idea of practicing the way of Jesus. And we bail on the kingdom of God and we settle back into the fleeting comforts of, of living within the dynamics of the kingdom of earth. And what happens when we do that? We take ourselves off the path of flourishing which Jesus is opening up to us. And in doing so, we miss out. Now, the other option that we have is to compromise a little bit. Toe the line. Like, be just righteous enough where we're not persecuted, but not too unrighteous where we don't get to claim any sort of righteousness. Right? It's like having one foot in the kingdom of heaven and another foot in the kingdom of the earth. And I think this is maybe one of the most common failures that we have as a church. We see this in a lot of mainstream denominations. We see this with a lot of you know, cultural Christians who just sort of adjust to the cultural expectations, right? who compromise the doctrines of their Christian faith in order to sort of just avoid conflict and sort of stay within the status quo. Like they say, I believe in Jesus, but I don't necessarily agree with everything he says. See, we try to go under the radar. And when we do that, this points out a serious character flaw. 
This is antithetical towards righteousness because it shows our lack of integrity, that we're just pandering. There's, that, like, this is, righteousness has this sense of uprightness and doing right no matter what, yet here it is, we're, we're sort of wavering. And partial righteousness is not righteousness at all. In fact, God calls it evil. And the third option you have is to lean in. You can acknowledge the persecution for what it is. You acknowledge the, the affliction for what it is and lean in. But here's the thing. In order to do this, you must have an eternal and supernatural perspective. An eternal and supernatural perspective that not only allows you to endure what you face, but to welcome it as you endure it. To celebrate it. Now, first here, let's talk through this. First, we must, to have this eternal perspective, we must realize that people are actually responding to Jesus and not to me. Right? Going back to that 2 Corinthians chapter 2 thing where, where Paul talks about the, the aroma of Christ. The smell that people are picking up on is not me, it's the smell of Christ. And so the, it, that, that's a way that we can sort of differentiate us in, in a sense where it's like this is not a personal attack. This is a response that people are having to Jesus. And if we think about it in terms of, of Galatians, um, Paul talks about it's not I who live, but it's Christ in me. And so what Jesus is doing, that any, any righteousness that surfaces in my life is not actually me bringing it to the top. It's Jesus bringing it to the top. It's Jesus being pulled out of my life. Now that's why Jesus says, blessed are you when you're persecuted for right righteousness' sake. See, when we have this imputed righteousness that, that Jesus gives us and it's, a, it's sort of manifesting itself in our lives as active righteousness, on account of Jesus, it's not really personal. It's not really us. It's Jesus who's being rejected. And when Christians suffer for Jesus, know this, that Jesus actually takes offense of this personally. When, when the apostle Paul, before he became Paul, was persecuting the church, Jesus showed up. He said, Paul, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Like Jesus' identity, Jesus is so united with this church that he actually feels the pains himself of whatever affliction that we may feel on account of him. And so we know this, that, that to be persecuted does not mean we are being overlooked by God. In fact, if anything, it shows us that Jesus has a softened demeanor towards us, that Jesus is aware and attentive to us. As we, 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 uh, we heard this morning, that a bruised reed he will not break. Right? He's near to the brokenhearted. Not only that is he near, but he's motivated to do this, something about this. So this eternal perspective, we must know that whatever we, we may face in this life, whatever adversity, it is a momentary affliction. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Because this is just, what you face right now, this life is just a blip on the radar of eternity. It's just a moment. Sure, it hurts. Sure, it might be unpleasant. But guess what? It's going to fade away. See, every adversary, everything that runs opposed to Jesus will either fade away, it'll just sort of diminish into the background and become non-existent, or it will be changed. It'll be changed into something that serves Jesus' purposes. And the book of Revelation is a great encouragement of this to see how Jesus is taking all the brokenness and he's going to make it all right. But even more than that, with this eternal perspective, we see that our persecution, the agony that we face now, 
the hurts that we have now, the bruises we get now, will be replaced with pleasure. Paul continues on in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says this, this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. J.R.R. Tolkien talks about everything sad becomes untrue in the hands of Jesus. Like all of the things that we face will eventually fade away and actually it will get replaced with pleasure. See, not only is it light and momentary, but persecution actually brings about more pleasure. That's why we can say, hear Jesus say, blessed are those who rejoice and be glad when. It's because joy sits on the other side of persecution. This glorious life-giving future that Jesus offers for those who are persecuted. So rejoice and be glad, for you have a great reward in heaven. See, the future glory that awaits us in Christ is so compelling that it reaches back into this present moment and gives us a deep sense of joy in the midst of suffering. We sang about it this morning. It produces a joy and gladness where we can actually embrace the suffering that we might face. First Peter talks about this in chapter 4. He says, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you might also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. See, suffering with Christ makes us eligible to share in the glory of Christ. Now, this assumes quite a bit about Jesus, right? If we're suffering for Jesus, this means that he must actually be who he says he is, right? That that Jesus must actually be Lord, Christ, and King. Otherwise, Christians are just fools and we're suffering for no reason. We're just going about it and we're taking hits and bruises all along the way. And for what? Just pointless suffering if Jesus isn't Lord. But if Jesus is Lord, if Jesus is Christ, if he is king, then our suffering is not in vain. And we can see when we trace our suffering back to his suffering that his suffering is not in vain. See, Jesus, when he faced persecution, and in fact, Jesus was the only one who can really claim that he lived the righteous life and was persecuted for it. Everything that he did was good, right, and perfect, yet he was reviled, he was slandered, he was hated, and it ultimately drove him to a cross. Guess what? And Jesus endured it for the joy that was set before him. Jesus met persecution, unjust persecution, with the power of the resurrection, that Jesus, though he was snuffed out, God made him alive again on the third day. He gave him this resurrection power, which he overcame the world. That's why Jesus tells us to take heart, for I have overcome the world. So even though you're facing persecution, even you might might be being pushed to your limits, don't give up, don't back down. He has overcome the world. In fact, this is the only kind of power that can have such a lasting and dramatic effect. Because right? if Jesus isn't who he says he is, how in the world does a carpenter from Nazareth have such a lasting and global impact? How in the world? Like, how does it make it past the first century? Nobody celebrates dead people like that. Yet Jesus shows us this resurrection power, and he turns the world upside down. And in doing so, he shows us the power of the resurrection, not just when we die and Jesus will resurrect us once and for all for the new heavens, new earth, but the resurrection power is at work right now. 
It's at work right now helping us to endure persecution. But the only way that we can endure our persecution, the only way we can remain faithful is to realize that this is not up to us in being faithful. It's up to Jesus and his faithfulness. It's his steadfastness. It's him holding on to us and not letting go of us and not backing down when he was persecuted that gets us to the end. See, Jesus is holding on to us. He endured the ultimate persecution. And now as we live for him, as we practice the way of Jesus, it requires this resurrection power at work in our life. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, verses 8 through 17, he says this. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that I, by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul gets it. He knows on the other side of suffering is glory. And so the question is, is it worth it? When we face this, is it worth it? First of all, is it easy? No. Mm-mm. Christian life, there's going to be all kinds of adversity, all kinds of challenges, all kinds of difficulties as we navigate this broken world. But is it worth it? Paul says, yes. He says, yes, he's worth it. It's worth losing everything that I would know the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus, my Lord. So church, if we are living within the dynamics of the kingdom of heaven, if our mind is set on the things of, uh, that are above and not here before us, we can lean into the resistance that we might face as we practice the way of Jesus, not only with you know, long-suffering and enduring mindset, but with a joyful and celebratory demeanor. Because Jesus tells us, blessed Blessed, flourishing, joyful, happy, fulfilled are those who are suffering, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Let us bear the name of Jesus with gladness, whatever might befall, knowing that glory awaits on the other side. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that against all odds, against my unrighteousness, you have acted in such a way the personal work of Jesus, where now, by faith, I am counted righteous. That Jesus lived the perfect life for me, for us. He died the sinner's death on my behalf. He took my unrighteousness upon himself, and he nailed it there to the cross. And the gift of life that he gives is a life of joy and righteousness. Father, we thank you that you have set us apart, that you have set us in the kingdom of your beloved Son. And we can, like Jesus, affirm that our kingdom is not of this earth. The kingdom that we belong to is not here in the United States of America. It's not here in North America. It's not even on this globe somewhere. The kingdom we belong to is the kingdom of heaven. Make us people who abide by the dynamics of the kingdom. Make us people who are joyful, who are long-suffering, who can face adversity and persecution knowing that glory awaits that there's glory on the other side, God. We thank you that you can take the brokenness and make something beautiful out of it, and, and our lives are just a testimony of that. 
Would you do this good work in us? Help us to be this kind of church that can endure, not only, not only endure, but be sensitive and aware of other parts of the body of the church. Globally, in our, in our country, where people are actually under, in, enduring severe persecution, God. Be strong for us. Give us your strength. Give us your power. Bring us into resurrection life now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 